Good morning again, all souls. It is my privilege to introduce Josh Irby, who's going to be preaching uh, to us this morning and uh, sharing what God has put on his heart as we are in our series called Hope Amid the Ruins. Josh is a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary, and for the last 10 years, he had been serving as a missionary with crew overseas in Sarajevo, Bosnia. And uh, so you are very familiar with what it's like to be a creative minority in a culture that, uh, where evangelical presence is diminished and, and, and small. Uh, Josh has transitioned back to working in the United States, has been here for, since March, mm-hmm. uh, the, when the pandemic uh, upended their lives and brought them back. Josh is the uh, husband to Taylor and the father to Izzy, who did our liturgy this morning, as well as Addie, who did the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Elijah, Isaac, and Zoe as well. It's a privilege to have you. Bring it. All right, thank you. <laughs> Let me get rid of this thing. It is a privilege to uh, be here with you all this morning. Uh, it's fun to actually be in the sanctuary. This is great. This is one of the privileges of preaching, because I get to be here in person. And I was almost uh, couldn't control my emotions of being here with live worship, and that was great, and I look forward to the day we all can do that together. But this is a topic that really resonates with my heart. Uh, When Stephen asked if I would uh, preach one of the sermons in this series on rebuilding, uh, I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, yes, because that's where we've been living as a family since March. As Stephen referenced, we, we have been living for almost 11 years overseas. And in March, over the course of one weekend, we had to pack up our our family, our lives, and and come back to the States under a global pandemic, during a time of social upheaval and division, during an election year. Man, what a year to try to relocate internationally. And so this idea of rebuilding among the ashes is really personal to us. What, I, what I'm asking God to have happen this morning as we look at this story is that we truly gain a sense of hope that God is the God who rebuilds among the ashes. And that's not just an idea from years ago, but something is true in our lives today. So if you would, let's look at Ezra chapter 3. We're going to read it. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll jump in and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Ezra chapter 3, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua the son of Josedach with his fellow priest and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, 
according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to, the praise, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for preserving this text for us, that here we are thousands of years later and we can read about your people rebuilding among the ashes. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this, you would speak to us, you would open our hearts, open our eyes, change us by the power of the word of your truth, that we could be the people you want us to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. Rebuilding among ashes is hard. And uh, I feel like our family's had a front row seat to that over the last decade. As Stephen mentioned, we lived in Sarajevo, which is a gorgeous town in the middle of the Balkans, uh, the middle of former Yugoslavia in the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's an old town, has roots from the Ottoman Empire, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you have European walking streets, people sitting out, drinking coffee, espressos, cappuccinos, looking up at the beautiful mountains that surround the city, green with trees. It was actually the host of the 1984 Olympics. Um, we live within short drive of two different Olympic ski slopes. It was a beautiful, beautiful town full of beautiful people. But you may know that in the 1990s, as Yugoslavia was being torn apart by ethnic nationalism and division, Sarajevo was turned into a war zone. It actually the longest siege in modern warfare happened in Sarajevo, four years long. As these beautiful mountains that had hosted the Olympics where they had the bobsled and the skiing turned into places for military vehicles and bunkers from which they shot bombs into the city. During one stretch of the war, there was an average of 8,000 bombs a day raining in on the city. Houses were destroyed. Places of worship were destroyed. Community Buildings were destroyed, and the people were left with nothing but the rubble. In order to stay warm during the winters, they would actually cut down the trees in town, so that by the end of the war, it was a town with no trees in it. Imagine coming into a town with no trees. That was the city that we were in, and for the last 25 years, the Syrievans have 
been working to rebuild that city and we got to see much of that. It's hard to rebuild among the ashes and the rubble. And I think Sarajevo kind of gets us towards what these people must have been feeling in this story. This, this chapter actually takes place about 100 years prior to the chapter that Stephen read last week. It's like the prequel. This is the exiles, the first people to leave Babylon and come back to rebuild in Jerusalem. They had been there for 48 years, almost half a century. They had built up their own homes, their own businesses, their gardens. They're beginning to bear fruit from the gardens. They had their life in Babylon. And yet when King Cyrus made a decree that people living under his rules, specifically the Jews, could, could return to their land and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple and restart their worship. These people we, we see at the end of chapter 2, it's 42,360 people pack up their lives, shut down their shops, say goodbye to friends and family, and take the 900-mile, four-month journey to rebuild their city. And they weren't coming to, to comfortable houses and, and smooth roads and you know, community works and things like that. They were coming to the ashes of their former life, to the rubbles of their parents' lives. So this makes me ask, what would cause people to up in their life, to give up their comfort, their sacrifice, their money, to come to a place where nothing is established in order to rebuild. Well, I think the, the two things that they do when they arrive give us a picture of why they would come. It also gives us a picture of the hope we have in rebuilding. They do two things. They, they build an altar and restart the sacrifices. And they celebrate a festival. And we're going to celebrate the festivals of God again. You know, building altars is something that's very common in our Bible. Uh, Noah... He gets off the ark. He just survived the most traumatic thing to ever happen on the earth. What is the first thing he does? He builds an ark, I mean, an altar to the Lord, makes a sacrifice, and it says the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Abram, God meets with him, gives him a promise, says, go to the land I will show you. He arrives at the land, this very land that our people are in right here in this story. What does he do? He builds an altar to the God who appeared to him and made him a promise and kept it. Moses, after all the plagues, the people come out of Egypt, they cross over the Red Sea on dry land. What happens? An army comes and attacks them on the other side. Yet God delivers them. And what does Moses do? He builds an altar to the Lord who's with his people, who protects his people. You see, building an altar is, is saying, thank you, God for seeing me, for caring about me, for being with me. This idea of building an altar becomes clarified and codified uh, after uh, they come out of Egypt at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai. Uh, the same meeting where God gives the Ten Commandments, he also gives instructions of how his people, Israel, are supposed to worship. And he explains uh, they're to build this mobile temple that's to travel with them, and they're going to camp around it. And part of that temple is the altar. And listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus 29, verses 42 through 45. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. 
There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. See, the altar was a place to come and meet with God, to hear from God, to speak to God, to hear God speak to you. Why would 42,360 people pack up their lives and go travel, walk most likely, or bump along in a cart, walk 900 miles over the course of four months? Why would they do that? Because God's there. They wanted to dwell where God dwelled. They wanted to hear what God wanted to say. They wanted to be with God. It kind of reminds me of a, a 1980s song. Oh, I would walk 500 miles and I, you know the song, right? And I would walk 500 more just to be the man who'd walk a thousand miles to fall down at your door. Stephen, I feel like if we were in person, they'd be like breaking into song now. Da, 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 da. But hopefully you're doing that at home. Continue on. But just take a thousand and replace it for 900. Take the door and replace it for altar. And that's, that's the biblical historical context we have here. They walk 900 miles to fall down at the altar because that's where God is. And they do something else as well. They start celebrating festivals. God had given them a very rich calendar full of festivals like Passover to remember the events of their past and look forward to what God would do in the future. And the seventh month, which is our context, it says when the seventh month came, was the richest of the months of festivals. It was the harvest month. It started with a festival of trumpets. And then they had the festival we know as Yom Kippur, uh, the um, Day of Atonement, where it's one of the few solemn days where they look at their sin and, ask, and confess and ask God to forgive them for that. And then there was a seven-day festival where they would live outside in tents, and they would remember how God had led the people of Israel in tents through the desert safely. It's called the Festival of Booths. Not the Festival of Booths. That's a different festival that might make you end up in a tent, but the festival of booths where they would remember God's faithfulness. And so here they are celebrating that festival. See, these festivals, what they did is they created a rhythm for God's people in which they were centered around God, a rhythm of relationship with God centered on their relationship with him. The people travel 900 miles. They come back because God is there. They restart this rhythm. They recenter on God. And I'm sure they needed to. After 48 years away, not able to celebrate the festivals in the way that they wanted to in Jerusalem, they had become decentered, centered on other things. And now we come to us as we look at our own lives and we want to rebuild. So we want to build something in, in the ashes of 2020, in the ashes of where we are now. And I'm guessing we're pretty decentered ourselves. Maybe there's even some patterns that have come up over this last year and we begin to rotate our lives around other things and other relationships and other things that we care about. And the call to rebuild is first a call 
to recenter our life and rhythm in a relationship with God. So the question for us we need to address first is, what are these patterns that God is calling us to establish for this coming year that bring us into a rhythm in relationship with God? Now, we don't sleep out in tents for seven days unless we call that vacation. We don't sacrifice lambs on an altar. But God has given us some rich patterns for us to use as his people uh, to be in rhythm with him and centered on him. Like Sabbath, what we're doing right now, taking time away from our work, stopping working to be with God and his people. What a blessing Sabbath is. And, and over Lent, Stephen's going to take a deep dive into Sabbath and help us to understand that better. Maybe God's calling you to establish that pattern. Or prayer. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to meet with God to be where he dwells. We can, in our own room, pray to him, and that's how we speak to him. That's where we hear him. That's where we commune with him. He's given us prayer as a gift, as a way of being in connection with him. Or reading and meditating on God's word. How do we hear from God? Well, he's given us his word to hear from him, to change our life, to challenge us. If you're wanting to start some of these patterns, maybe joining the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality group with Mike would be a great place to start. Because I love what Peter Scazzaro, the author of that book, says about this rhythm of life. He calls it a rule of life, borrowing from the monastics. He says this, a rule of life is an intentionally conscious plan to keep God at the center of all we do. This is where rebuilding starts. Rhythm that puts God in the center of all we do. This is what the exiles understood, and that's what they did. Now, we could close there, but I'm glad we're not. I'm glad that we decided to do the whole chapter, because otherwise what you would have heard me say so far is, rebuilding spiritual practices is important, so go out there and do it. That's how we rebuild. But we all know that it's actually not that easy, right? Because deep in our heart, we know we're really not that good at them. And we're not, we're not without company in that. Let's look what happens in the rest of our chapter. Between verse 7 and 8, a year and a half passes. The first section stops with them collecting uh, the resources they need and preparing to rebuild the temple. Chapter 8, start, or not chapter 8, verse 8 starts with that process of rebuilding beginning. They've got their priests decked out in all their priestly garbs. They've got the band is out there. We've got cymbals and trumpets and singing and shouting, just a classic Presbyterian gathering. And they're, they're coming together and they're excited because they're going to build the temple of God, the center of their worship and rhythm. And they lay out the foundation and people are shouting with joy. They're singing Psalm 136, for his steadfast love endures forever. And yet in the midst of this singing, you hear another noise. It's the old men, the ones who had seen Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. And they're not singing, they're weeping. And it says their wails were loud and it blended in with the singing. 
and it was heard all over the valley. Why were there weeping? Well, the prophet Haggai actually gives us some insight. He says, they saw the foundation and thought it was as nothing. They saw this foundation of the temple. They remembered the beauty of Solomon's temple with all its gold, and they say, this is too small. This is too small. And so they grow discouraged. And unfortunately, what happens in the rest of the story is the rebuilding of the temple stops here. Chapter 4, opposition comes from the locals. They write a letter to the new king. The new king sends a letter back, stop building the temple. They stop building. They go and start building their own lives. They build up their own houses. They get nice furniture in there, paneled walls. They work on their garden. They work on their business. For 20 years, they're building up. They're centered around building up their own life because they got discouraged because it was too small. Does this sound familiar? It does to me. How many times have you been praying and you thought, man, that was a great prayer. I was just so focused. I was zoned in. Man, that was just a great prayer. I nailed that prayer. Anyone? Hands? No one in the building? On, I don't know, at home, if you're raising your hands there. Too many times... Uh, when I'm praying, I feel more like Ricky Bobby at the, at the dinner table than Jesus in the garden. I mean, I'm, it's, it's a struggle to keep my focus. And my prayer feels so small. And so I get discouraged. And I lose heart. And I give up. What about worship? This morning, we sang holy, holy, holy. How many of you, when you were singing that, thought, I am singing this song in a way that is worthy of the holiness of God? Okay, again, no hands. Or, or have you thought, I just nailed that liturgy. I mean, I just, perfect Dic diction, expression. This is worthy of, of the God we worship. If there was an ESPN top 10 of liturgies, I would be on it. No, I don't feel that way. And we know that we struggle with these practices and we fall short and we're small. And so what do we do? We become discouraged. We give up hope. And we shift over and start centering around something else. Maybe my business will help me feel okay. Or maybe my home will help me feel okay. Or I'll focus on my family. Or I'll focus on this little project that helps me, me feel well. Or, or something else. And we begin to decenter and center on something else. Because it's so small. Why even do it? And yet there's some hope for us here in this process of recentering, in this process of building a rhythm around our relationship with God, in this process of rebuilding among the ashes, there's hope. Because 20 years later, God sends them a prophet, and his name is Haggai. Very short book. You could read it this afternoon. And Haggai comes and he calls them out. Why are you building up your paneled houses while the temple, the house of God, lies in ruins? But he says this thing that I think is is encouragement to us as well. He says, you know that temple that you think is so small, that temple that made you weep and mourn and cry, that temple you can't even, even stand to look at because it's not up to standard of the worthiness of God? In Haggai 2.9, he says this, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That small temple 
It's going to have more glory than even Solomon's temple. Why? Because fast forward 500 years, and into that imperfect temple walks the perfect Son of God. And in that temple, in that tiny temple, he teaches. And in that tiny temple, he heals. And he proclaims the day of the Lord's favor. And near that temple, he's taken and he's beaten and put on the cross. But just as he said near that temple, tear it down and three days later, I'll bring it back. And on the seventh month, the same feast that we celebrate here, or that they're celebrating here, Jesus walks into the temple and he says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Because you see, it doesn't matter how big the temple is. It's how big the God is that's in the temple that matters. It doesn't matter how faithful your prayers are. It's the faithfulness of the God that we pray to that matters. It doesn't matter how strong and deep your worship is but how strong and deep is the love of the God that we worship? Because what if these spiritual practices and disciplines are actually not about us at all? What if they're actually not about our depth and our consistency and our fervor and our faithfulness, but on the faithfulness and the fervent love and the consistency of God? Well, if that is the truth, then my friends, we have hope to rebuild among the ashes, to bring our tiny prayers, distracted, unclear, and allow him to fill those with life and truth and bring reality out of them and to sing our out-of-tune songs as best we can and lift our little voices and let him transform that into a brilliant melody in heaven. Because if it's not about us, if it's about God, we have hope. And so, let's come to prayer. Let's bring what we have to God and trust him to make it more. Let's bring what we have to worship and trust him to make it more. Let's center our lives in rhythm with him and see what he will do. Yesterday was a really important day in our family. It was actually the anniversary, we call it our, our family day. It was the anniversary, two-year anniversary of bringing our youngest son, Isaac, to be in our family uh, from Bulgaria, where we adopted him. He was two, year old, two years old when he came, and he was coming out of a lot of ashes in his two years of life. And being a two-year-old full of anxiety, being transported to another country where we don't speak the language, being afraid, and dealing with the trauma of his past. As many adopted kids do, he, he picked one of us to attach to, and it was me. This was the first time I had one of our children choose me first. It was, it was very nice at first. He was with me everywhere. We, he could not do anything without me. If I'm cooking in the kitchen, he's on the counter. If I'm sitting on the couch, he's in my lap. At night, he could not sleep without touching me. He would wake up three or four times every night just to make sure I had not left him and I was still there. Which made for some very, we finally got him out of our bed of me half hanging out of my bed to touch him so he could sleep in his little crib. 
Out of his anxiety and ashes, he chose me as a person to center on because he thought that gave him hope. He thought I could help him through that. Now, what Isaac didn't know is that I am imperfect and I'm not, I don't love him consistently the way I should and I can't solve all of his problems. But I want to be like Isaac with God. I want to center on him. I want to say where you go, I want to go. And if these practices help me to do that, I want to do those things. Because in my life of ashes and anxiety and trouble and insecurity and lack of knowledge about the future and unfortunate knowledge about the present, there's one thing I know I can circle around and attach to that'll give me hope, and that is God. And I hope that same thing for you as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that it's not the size of the temple, but the size of the God in the temple. And we thank you that you are the God of the temple. And we ask you to come. We're thirsty, Lord. We come to you. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your hope. Allow life to flow out of us into our own lives and into the lives of others as we center our life on you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. And now having heard the word proclaimed, we come to the table, the altar upon which we meet our God. It's there that we remember Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And he did this so that we may remember. And so that through this practice of remembrance, we may recenter upon him and upon his sacrifice to us and for us. And so as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up our hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his disciples together. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread. And he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Take all of you and eat of it. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. And so, friends, as we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat. All has been made ready.